prompt us to return to our study of Genesis. Uh, so we are rounding third base, if you will. There, there's your reference. Um, if, see, if I make soccer references, no one knows what I'm talking about. Uh, but we're rounding third base in the book of Genesis. We're probably closer to the shortstop at this end because uh, we still have 13 chapters left. Uh, but it is the last unit of Genesis. And because we're looking at a significant portion of the book, I want us to uh, look at the story from high up in the air before we get lost in the weeds. And what the story of Joseph does is it is a perfect image of the broader biblical narrative that is the story of Christianity. And this is the story of exile and return. Really, as we'll see, it's the story of exile to exaltation. Um, and, and so uh, we want to start in Genesis 3. I know I have Genesis 37. It's going to take us two weeks to get through this. We won't even get to Genesis 37, right? This is all introduction. So if you want to hear about Joseph, come next week. Um, but Genesis 3, to set this up, uh, what I, we've looked at this before, but I know everyone's already forgotten it. Um, so I want, us to, I want to show how this theme goes from Genesis to Revelation and that the gospel addresses it. Uh, because this actually helps us understand our neighbors and why the gospel is good news. So you, obviously you, you know the story of Adam and Eve, right? Uh, they're, they're in the garden. They're, they're, they're with God. He walks among them. Then they sin. Obviously we, we know the story. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. Uh, it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man, Adam, Adam, has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Pause there. The, the problem isn't that he knows good and evil, but that he lacks the wisdom to discern between good and evil. That is demonstrated in why they ate of the fruit to begin with. Uh, it, he, the, the, the serpent promised wisdom, but it was wisdom apart from God's will. Uh, the tree of life um, was, is, is a life of wisdom and, and growth in the knowledge of the Lord. That's so why Solomon can say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, so this, they violate that, and this becomes the history of humanity to, to this day. Um, now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Obviously, there's a lot here. and We don't have time to dig into it. Sunday morning, we're going to look at the tabernacle, the building of the tabernacle in Solomon. Um, the reference to cherubim here shows up in, in 1 Kings uh, 5 to 7. Uh, what is hovering over the Ark of the Covenant? Uh, it's cherubim, go cherubim. Uh, so the cherubim, they're, they're not angels, they are cherubim. Angels don't have wings. The cherubim, um, they, they, they're one of their primary roles in the Bible is protective. Uh, they're often described as the ones um, enthroned uh, or, or, or that the, the God is, sits above where the cherubim are, you know. Uh, so so they, they play an important role. Here, here's the cherubim guarding the sanctuary of God. The first temple in the Bible is the Garden of Eden. But that's neither here nor there. What I want to point out here is notice that sin leads to exile. Adam and Eve are exiled from the Garden of Eden. And they go east of the Garden. We've talked about this in our study of Genesis. That when you see east, particularly in Genesis... It is a picture of man's ongoing exile from the presence of God. So in the next story, Genesis 4, uh, you, you find that uh, God tells Cain, 
sin is crouching at your door. It's animalistic language, like a, like a tiger would or a lion would before it pounces. Um, well, what is the door? Well, if they are just east of Eden, where the door is, it could be perhaps a sort of reference to the serpent narr- narrative. That here, that door, you know, you're, you're camped just outside the garden. Sin is again crouching at the door and it desires you. So what happens to Cain? Cain then gets exiled. He goes farther east. Now, what does Cain do after he kills his brother and is exiled? He goes to build a city. Now, why does he build a city? He builds it for the reason of protection. Again, if we had time, we we could look at this in in some detail. Remember what Cain says. Cain says, uh, you know, God puts a mark on him. And Cain says, I don't like this because people will know that I'm a murderer and they will murder me. Which, which is ironic because the guilty one um, doesn't want to pay the price for his guilt. What he wants and what he expects is for someone else to take his place. Well, he may have some concept of substitutionary atonement. He just is unwilling to receive the you know, repentance necessary for it. Uh, but anyways, uh, so he goes to build a city. Um, and this is for protection. The city becomes a means of protection. Think of it. The ancient Near Eastern world, uh, cities were places of protection. You have high walls, um, and, and uh, it's protective. You have a military in it. You may work in the field outside the walls, but if the trumpet sounds, the army's coming, you go inside the city. Uh, the city of refuge in the law, right, is if you think you've been falsely accused of a crime in this city, you flee to the next, you cry refuge, and you are safe from those who would punish you until your, your case can be tried. By the way, we do that today, right? Let's say there's a high-profile case that happens here in Frankfurt. The defendant can ask the judge to have the case moved to another city so that they can get a fair trial. We do the same thing today. We just don't have high walls around our cities. The same concepts. Um, well, what, what happens after uh, the flood, right, is you have more exile language. Uh, a city is built after the flood, the Tower of Babel. Tower Babel is just a city. It's the city of Babel, Babylon. It's the root of, of Babylon. And what does God do to the inhabitants of Babylon? He exiles them. He sends them away. So now they, they, they won't be one. They, they are now going to be at war against each other. Well, there is a guy who grew up near Babylon, or Babel, rather. He grew up in the city of Ur, and his name was Abram. So you can look at Babel, you can look at Ur. We have found Ur, you can speak the language, all of that. Uh, It's a real city, and uh, Abram is from there. What does God ask Abram to do? He asks him to leave. He goes over to Haran, his father ends up dying up there, and he ends up in Canaan. Now, uh, the promise to Abram is you, or this land is promised to your descendants, Notice Abraham is not being exiled to the land. He's being drawn to it. And, it's, and, and that is the Abrahamic promise. However, Abraham is not a citizen of that land. He dies not a citizen of that land. Rather, Abraham is a sojourner in the land. Let me give you a few references here just to show you I'm not making this up. Genesis 12. Now, there was a famine in the land, so Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there. Now, notice here. Abram, immediately after receiving the promise, is exiled due to famine. This story will be repeated later with Isaac. Isaac uh, wants to go to Egypt. 
Uh, but God says, don't go to, down to Egypt. And remember, there's a famine in Canaan. He starts digging the wells and people fill up the wells because they're jealous. It's a weird story. Uh, well, that is to say Isaac learned a lesson that Abraham didn't because uh, Abraham goes down as an exile, sojourner, uh, to, to Egypt. And there he'll say that his wife is his sister. And Abraham's story of going to Egypt and coming out mirrors that of the Israelites. Abraham goes down to Egypt because of famine. The sons of Jacob will go down to Egypt because of famine. God will bring Abraham out to a land of plenty. God will bring the Israelites, the sons of Jacob, out uh, from Egypt to a land of plenty. Uh, so the story of Israel, it begins with the story of Abraham. Uh, Genesis 15, the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land. There's that word. And that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. So this is, of course, a prophecy of the Exodus narrative. Uh, so by the end of Genesis, this is fulfilled. The first part of it is that, that just as you were a sojourner into Egypt... So your descendants will sojourn into Egypt. They will not be citizens of that land. God will call them out to return to the land. However, they don't possess the land yet. Abraham dies. He doesn't possess it. Isaac dies. Jacob dies. Joseph dies. They don't possess it. Genesis 20, uh, from there, Abraham journeyed towards the territory of the Negev, and he sojourned to Gerar. A sojourner is one who has no home. Right? Genesis 21, Abram sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. So now he's outside the promised land. Finally, Genesis 23, I am a sojourner, this is Abraham speaking, and, uh, and a foreigner among you, give me property to bury my wife. Right? This is when um, um, his wife dies, and this is a significant story. It's a long story. It's a strangely long story, but it is the story where the first time um, an Israelite, a Jew, buys land, owns property in the promised land. It's a very important story. It is Abraham taking possession of the land. It's just a, like an acre of land. It's nothing. God's promised him all this, and he's, he's got one little piece of it. But it's significant because that's the beginning of the possession, taking the possession of land. Jacob will do the same thing later, or Isaac will, rather. Uh, but you can see his language is, not that I am an exile, I've been kicked out of a land. I've been drawn into a land, but I haven't taken possession of it. I'm not a citizen. I'm a foreigner. I'm a sojourner. If you read the stories of Isaac and Jacob, one of the things you'll find is they have to be really careful with what they do and say. The reason is because they have no rights in the land. Because they are not citizens. They are foreigners. And so uh, that story, whether it's directly told or indirectly told, it is the story of sojourning. Now, what does God do is he gives this exile, this sojourner, a new name, Abraham. And God makes a name for him. Now, God will connect Abraham's story, as we've seen, with the story of Exodus. Let me give you an example of this. Genesis 15, 7. I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess, right? That is repeated to the Israelites. I am the Lord your God who brought you not out of Ur, but out of Egypt, out of slavery. So again, what we see in Abraham, we're going to see repeated in the story of Israel. What we see in the story of Israel will be repeated in other characters in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament, this is a pattern you see over and over again, uh, that we are exiles, but God calls his people to a greater land. And in the meantime, we are sojourners. 
So Abraham is a citizen of a land he is yet possessed. And in the meantime, he's sojourning as a foreigner. This is the same story with Isaac, Genesis 26. The Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt, dwell in the land of which I would tell you, sojourn in this land and I will be with you and bless you. Same language. Jacob, think about the story of Jacob. Talk about a guy always in exile, right? He, he obviously, he, he, he's born, all that. He has issues with, with Esau. Once he deceives his father, he is exiled from the promised land. And he's gotta go find him a wife. Gets him a wife. What happens? The deceiver is deceived. He sticks around for over 20 years. But what does he finally decide to do? Leave. So he's, he's exiled from his father's home. He's exiled from his father-in-law's home. Remember that they have that agreement. They will never see each other again. So you remember that he, he meets Esau and it's a whole ordeal. And, and what does Jacob decide? I cannot go with the Edomites. I can't trust my brother. A dude's got a temple, a temper. So he's now exiled from the Edomites. And he has to go back to the promised land where he is a sojourner. Now, the story again, it continues throughout the rest of the Old Testament. The Exodus story is a story of rescue from exile. Judges is a story of exile and return, exile and return, right? People of Israel are uh, unholy. God sends them into exile. They repent. God brings them back to the land. The next generation is unholy. God sends them in the exile. They repent. God returns them to the land, right? And we know the characters, Gideon and Samson and Deborah and Barak and, uh, and all the others. Um, the prophets foretell of an exile. Uh, that's the story of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. What's the warning? The Assyrians are going to come and they're going to send you out of the promised land. The Babylonians do the same thing. And we know the story of some of these sojourners, don't we? Daniel. The story of Daniel is a story of an exile. Esther is a story of an exile. David experiences exile from Saul, right? By the way, I, I was listening to a podcast unrelated to this, this issue, and, and this passage was highlighted. 1 Samuel 26, right? This is where Saul's hunting David, right? And in chapter 24 and 26, the same story is told twice. Well, it's, it's not the same exact story. It's the same elements are repeated. That is, David spares Saul's life. Chapter 24, when Saul's in the cave relieving himself. Chapter 26, David sneaks in, steals a bunch of stuff, sneaks back out, right? And they're talking over this ravine, right? They can't get to each other. And David says, why do you pursue me? What have I done wrong against you? He says, for men have driven me out this day. Notice the language of being driven out. It's the language of Adam. Saul has driven him out of the promised land. He's in exile. At this time, David has had to send his entire family to, a, to the Moabites to live because they are unsafe in Israel because of Saul's rage. Now, why is the Moabites so important? David's great-great-grandmother, I believe, was a Moabitess, Ruth. So there is a family connection there. Now, later, David will conquer the Moabites, but right now they're friends, okay? Um, so um, you have driven me out to a foreign land and to a land I have no share of a heritage. This is foreign language to us because we don't think in these terms. To the ancient people, land... Uh, not just your family land, but your national land. That is your identity. And God's rule lands. Okay? So Yahweh rules Canaan, and the gods of the Moabites rule 
the land of Moab. The gods of the Edomites rule uh, Esau's descendants. Uh, the story of Troy, right? In the story, Homer has the Greek gods, the invaders, fighting the Trojan gods because fighting over land is a spiritual fight, not just a military, military one. That's why you say that my God will beat your God sort of stuff. So he's saying, I have no heritage with the Lord because I'm outside of land. I've been exiled. And so I'm having, I've been told basically to go serve other gods. What he's saying is, is you don't go to Moab worshiping Yahweh. You won't find them there. All right? This is what makes idolatry so serious in the Bible. They tie their theology to their geography. We don't do that because we take it for granted the day of Pentecost. Um, and so they, 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 they talk about that. Um, yeah. Could that, this is speculative, could that possibly be why Jerusalem fell after the Messiah came as to show? Yeah, the classic Christian answer is Israel is judged because they rejected their Messiah. But that, that God's kingship was to spread to the ends of the earth, so could that have been the erasing yeah, that's another one is, is that the Christians didn't cry at the destruction of the temple because God doesn't dwell there anymore. So, so it is, it is the, the purpose of the temple ended when Christ was risen from the dead. Now, we don't have a text that says God sent in the Romans to destroy Israel because of judgment, uh, unless you interpret revelation in that light. In Jesus' language of not a stone will be remo- uh, remain, but we just don't have. But that's a classic you know, the nation that didn't just reject the Messiah, but crucified him, fell under judgment. So, um, but what I want to see here is that this is the story of Joseph. Next week, we'll see it in more detail. But Joseph is a story of exile, right? It's he is exiled from Jacob and his brothers. He's exiled from Potiphar to his wife. Uh, he's, he's, he's exiled in, into prison, right? It's the story of exile. Um, and, but then it's the story of return. So Joseph goes down, goes down, goes down. Then he goes up, he goes up, he goes up. And Joseph dies with a final request that his bones be preserved to be buried in the promised land. It's a story of exile, of an exile that returns. And more than that, it's a story of exile that leads to exaltation. This little slave boy becomes second in command over all of Egypt. And as a result, the people that come with him, the soldiers come with him, they too are exalted. So in that context, he's a, he's, a, he's a type of Christ. Well, I want to skip to the New Testament. We'll look at Joseph more specifically next time. Um, uh, but um, for Christians, um, this is consistent with our theology. In fact, this shows up in the New Testament. Let me give you two examples here. Acts 7, this is where Stephen is being martyred, right? Where he's about to be martyred. He gives the, well, I think it's the longest sermon in Acts. Don't quote me on that. But he, he, he basically gives you a biblical theology of the Old Testament climaxing in Jesus. I mean, he's quite the theologian. He's a deacon. I mean, that's the impressive part. Deacons know their Bibles. So Acts chapter 7, um, God spoke to this effect that his offspring, Abraham, would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. He's quoting Genesis 15 we read earlier. He's referencing it. And so you see that Stephen understands the language of a sojourner. Now, this is given right before he's executed. 
So he's going to pick up on this theme of exile, sojourn, return, and it's going to climax into Jesus. The writer of Hebrews does the same thing. These all died, this, these men and women of faith, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Abraham died still a sojourner. Isaac dies still a sojourner. Jacob dies in exile, a sojourner in Egypt. Right? And all those generations die until Joshua takes the first step in the promised land and declares it his. Right? But they die believing the promise. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, like Moses seeing the promised land, acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles, notice here, on earth. You see what the writer of Hebrews just did. In the Old Testament, they are exiles. They are sojourners and foreigners in the land. The writer of Hebrews is trying to show is that that story of the people of God is a broader narrative of humanity, the sons of Adam. So he takes it from a story of the sons of Abraham and he broads it to the sons of Adam. He says the story of humanity isn't just that the Jewish race are sojourners, exiles, but the human race is. The reason we have this sense of longing and lost and brokenness and wounds and, and hurts and, and everything else is because we are exiles. And the only solution to exile is return, to go from ex exile to exaltation. And so either we can make this land ours, good luck with that, or we can see ourselves as sojourners awaiting a better land. And that's the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Israel. So even when Daniel is in Babylon, what is, what is he concerned with most? The Jews returning to the land. Read uh, the most shocking Psalm. I think Psalm 137, you know, bash the baby's heads up against the rocks. If, if, you, if you read the beginning of that, they're saying how, you know, the, Bab the Babylonians are telling us to sing our songs, right? And he said, how can we sing our songs when our hearts are longing for Israel, Jerusalem, and we're in Babylon? What is that? It's the language of exiles singing or unable to sing anymore of a longing for home. Uh, so this is a constant theme throughout the Bible. By the way, Jesus embodies this story, right? So the story begins. Jesus is born. I've shown this before in Matthew, so I don't want to belabor the point. In Matthew, the gospel writer has Jesus retelling the story of Israel. So in Matthew chapter 2, oh, um, he, uh, what happens is Herod is a new pharaoh, and he's tried to kill all the babies. So much as Moses was exiled to save his life, Jesus is exiled for his life to be saved. What's interesting is, is, is that Egypt becomes a place of refuge because Israel has become um, a, you know, an evil, dangerous place. That's the opposite of the Exodus story, where Israel becomes the place of refuge because Egypt is, is an evil place, right? It's, it's an aversion. It's to say that in the land of Israel, the spirit of Pharaoh, the serpent, dwells. That's a striking statement in the first century because they, 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 they were trying to save Israel from the Romans. And here comes Matthew, a good Jewish boy, saying, no, God needs to save Israel from the Israelites, right? Because the spirit of Pharaoh is in Herod's palace. It's a striking, striking um, political language, uh, by the way. So here, Jesus is exiled. The, story, the wilderness story, what happens, right? Jesus is baptized in Matthew chapter three. 
And we would expect Jesus, he, he, he walks in from the western part of, of Israel into the Jordan River, and we would expect him to then walk back through the west into the land of Israel, start preaching, been baptized. What does he do? He keeps going east into the wilderness. Well, that's the journey Israelites took. They had to go east into the wilderness, not for 40 years, but for 40 days. Jesus experiences the journey of a sojourner. He's exiled into the wilderness where he'll face the same temptations as the Israelites will. It's why Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy all three times. Man should not live by bread alone. Well, the story of Israel in the wilderness is about we want bread. So God sends down manna from heaven, right? It's a retelling of the story of Israel. Let me give you just, just, just one more example of exile in the ministry of Jesus. We give you several more. Um, Matthew chapter eight, um, a guy comes up and says, uh, I wanna follow you wherever you go. What's Jesus' answer? I ain't got a place to go. You ready for homelessness? You ready for an itinerant ministry where we're just hoping someone opens their door for us? Foxes have hoes, birds of the air have nests. Uh, the, you know, they have like airports. And the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. What is he claiming? I am a sojourner in a strange land. And he's asking this scribe, are you willing to become a sojourner like me? This, this is embedded in, in the story of, of Jesus. Um, and so what we see in the story of Jesus is before his incarnation, he's exalted above the heavens. He is the creator. He's the, the divine word of God, the logos. But then he is exiled, if we can use that language, where he becomes the form of a slave, um, a human. He adds to his nature that of humanity. And he is ultimately exiled to a cross. His own people don't want him. The, 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 the ruling power doesn't want him. He is exiled to a tree. Yet the beauty of the Christian gospel is this exile becomes exalted. This is the message of Paul in Philippians 2. Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is held on to. Right? Right? Um, but he emptied himself. He became as nothing by taking the form of a slave, the word there, slave, being born in the likeness of men, right? The lowest of the low. He's way up here. Now he's down here. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, right? A tree. That makes him a curse of God in Jewish thought. Makes him a foolish slave um, in the Roman thought. Therefore, therefore, not despite all of that, but therefore, because he lowered himself to the point of the cross, God has already exalted him and has already bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And what does he say after that? Because I ran out of space. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now notice there, you get exile, exaltation, name change, right? Much like Abraham. Abraham, you will become a sojourner in exile, and he gets a new name, a name given to him by God. And you have the same language of one who, who became an exile only to be exalted, and it is at his name the nations will bow down. So Paul takes the entire story of the Old Testament he says, you'll see it in Christ. 
And our hope is ultimately that we see the exaltation of Jesus in our lives and in the future. By the way, in case you're wondering, if you're not lost already or bored, uh, the, the apostles use this language, okay? First uh, Peter is, is the best place. Um, in First Peter 1, the very first verse, this comes up. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. This is the dispersion. That, that language is interesting, isn't it? First Peter is written to people suffering under the, uh, uh, the, the rule of Rome. And as a result, they're having to spread out, right? They're going everywhere. So, so they've been sent as sort of exiles. Now, it's not like Babylon where they come and conquer and send you out by force. This time, Rome is the dominating power threatening them, and they, they spread out for their own safety. And as a result of, of persecution and, and everything else, the gospel spreads and so Peter writes what is likely a circular letter to the dispersion or the elect exiles. And you'll, that, that language is important because it isn't just their exiles, but that they are God's elect exiles. So yes, they, they've been sent out, but this is part of God's evangelistic plan for reading, reaching Rome. And Peter begins his letter that way. You are sojourners. These are Christians. You're a sojourner. This land is not yours. This is not your home. You are awaiting a true and better home with your Savior who himself became an exile. He's not asking us to do anything he himself did not do. You go on down to uh, later on chapter one. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Isn't that amazing? You could take that last part out. Um, you know, God judges impartially, conduct yourselves good. But he's going to remind you, conduct yourself in a certain way in the land of your exile while you are a sojourner. You're Abraham among the Canaanites. You're Daniel among the Babylonians. You're Esther among the Persians. You're a sojourner. And God has you here. You're in exile. This isn't your home. You're waiting for something far better. Chapter two, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the past. Now, now notice again, you can take that out. I urge you to abstain from passions of the flesh. That makes, that's perfectly fine verse there. That'll preach. But you want to remind the reader, you are a sojourner. You're in exile. This world is not your home. Well, let me give you just one more, just to mention Paul. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's the land. Much as Abraham longed for a citizenship in Canaan that would eventually become his descendant, so too our longing is our citizenship is the kingdom of God. Okay. Uh, so this theme is clearly throughout the Bible. Next week, again, we'll, we'll look specifically at the story of Joseph, Lord willing. But what I want to do is give a few points of application. If you're not lost already, maybe, maybe I'll, I'll rest your attention. Uh, return. Uh, you feel like exiles in the middle of all this, maybe. Um, why does this matter? Like, who cares, right? Just give me John 3, 16, remind me that Jesus loves me, and then let's just go about our way. Why does this matter so much, right? Because the Bible's invested in this narrative, right? Why does it matter so much? Well, first of all, we are sojourners in the land of exiles. Every person you meet is an exile, whether they know it or not. They think they have built a home, but you talk to people enough, you realize they are lost. We use that language, don't we? Lost from what? 
Now, anyone who's lost is one who doesn't know where they're going, can't find their way back or lost. We are sojourners among exiles, which means we know where home is. The rest of the world doesn't. You wanna know why we come up with foolish ideas to fix every problem in the world? It's because we're lost. We're the blind leading the blind. Remember that next time you think if we pass this bill, that'll solve all of our problems. We are fools. We are exiles. Um, And the best thing we can come up with is idolatry. If I invest myself in this or go in this direction, then I can find home. And all we find is more darkness and lostness. But we are sojourners. We we are waiting to return home. We're waiting exaltation. Secondly, this world is not our home. This is consistent with what the Bible says, particularly the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5.8, yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and home with the Lord. Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind by the testing uh, you make discern what is the will of God that is good and acceptable, perfect. Don't be conformed to this world. It's not your home. Colossians 1.13, he, that is Christ, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We've gone from one kingdom to another, one domain to another. 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. We have passed from one into the other. Philippians 3, 12, uh, 20, we've already read this. Uh, we, uh, our citizenship is in heaven, and with it we, we await a savior. Hebrews 13, 14, for here we have no lasting city, here, but we seek a city that is to come. By the way, that is the fundamental um, root of Augustine's theology of the two cities, This is going to bore you, so we should probably skip it. If you're looking for perhaps the best political theology um, in history, it would be Augustine's theology of the two cities, city of man, city of God. And this is the root of that. Now, the book is like that thick, so don't go out and read it. But um, it's it's probably the best treatment. Luther develops it with his two kingdom idea. But but anyways, we'll move on. But the whole point is, is that we're not trying to build a city here in that our our, our hope is here, but rather we are sojourners. We have another home. This means that we, we have to guard from putting all of our hopes and dreams in this world. Whatever we lose in this world, we lose nothing. Uh, all that we may gain in this world pale, pales in comparison what awaits us. Romans eight eighteen. the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's the good news of the gospel. Thirdly, um, this world is not our friend. This is the error I think a lot of Christians have made in safe America. And we're, we're learning not to do that. Acts 2.40, and with many other words, Peter bore witness, continued to exhort them saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. You gotta come out of it. So our three great enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is not your friend. It may try to hijack Christianity for its own purpose, but the world is not your friend. And conformity to the world is anti-gospel. And those who dilute the gospel to save Christianity end up killing Christianity. The world is not your friend. Stop thinking that it is. Uh, It is hostile to us. Fourthly, um, Christians must be careful about turning this world into our home. 
You see this a lot in the culture wars. Um, Capital Commission asked me to do a lot of writing, and I've not done a whole lot of it. Um, and, but there is one I've been thinking about leading up to the election. One of the great errors I see we do as Christians is we spend more time fighting cultural wars than spiritual wars. And so we're trying to fix ethical, moral issues. That's, and there's some good in that, of course. We should protect marriage. We should protect life. We, we, we you know, protect our children, all that. But we spend more time um, protesting and sharing memes on Facebook than we do on our knees in warfare. What if we flip that? What if we became spiritual warriors and not cultural warriors? What if we worried more about principalities and powers than pink-haired and blue-haired Wokies from the city? Like, like, you shouldn't be afraid of someone who doesn't know the meaning of boy and girl. But we should go to war with, with spiritual entities that want to see us just die and suffer. Um, so we have to be careful about turning America into our, what we imagine it once was and get lost in nostalgia. Um, rather, we want something better than America. We want the kingdom of God. That they, they go, goes across all, all of that stuff. We, we, we want Christ to rule and reign among the nations. So we have to be careful. One last thing. The world needs... Um, There it is. Now I got to go back. There it is. The world needs Christ's love. Um, There is an old criticism of of Christianity, and and I suspect what we've talked about here, many may be thinking this. Um, There's no criticism that says Christians are so heavenly minded. You can finish it, right? They're no earthly good, right? Think about it. We're spending all of our time trying to get to heaven. We, We don't care about what happens here. And on the surface, that makes sense at least for those who have never studied the history of Christianity or know anything about the Bible or theology. What's interesting is that if your goal, so goals determine everything else in between, right? If you have no goal, so if if you want to, say, win a championship, something like that, right? And so your goal is that everything in between is driven towards that goal, right? So you're going to practice hard and you're going to uh, not... um, I don't know, do something that's going to ruin your career, you know, something like that, right? Um, uh, I got a little high school team coaching one player. I'm trying to um, monitor his knee. He thinks he can just play on it, and, you know, even though he's hurt it. And I'll say, look, I know you want to play for the next 10 minutes in practice of a meaningless scrimmage, but we have a goal. So what if you rested for the next 10 minutes in practice? Because the goal matters, right? And, and so that, that's true when it comes to Christianity. Um, you remember, what was the calling of Abraham? It was ultimately to be a blessing to the nations. If you read the story of Abraham, he's kind of terrible at that, isn't he? You remember, I mean, right after he gets the blessing, through you, the nations will be blessed. What does Abraham do? He goes and becomes a curse to Egypt because he lies about his wife being his sister. Right? That's not good. That's not good at all. Right? Um, but he has to be a blessing to the nations. The story of Solomon, the real climax is the Queen of Sheba coming. Why? Because the nations are being blessed through Solomon. Um, let me read C.S. Lewis. will summarize this for us. 
uh, this is from Mere Christianity, I think. A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set uh, on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think about the other world, they have become so ineffective in this. Here's the big quote. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. That's good. That's good. Only Lewis can come up with that. And he is exactly right. There's an interesting book uh, I started reading while we were on vacation. Actually, at the library, they're having their big sale, and I bought another book by this guy. Um, it's Tom Holland's book, Dominion. It's a big, thick book. Um, his argument's pretty simple. He is a uh, historian of antiquity, particularly Roman antiquity. And he's done a lot of study of, say, Julius Caesar. He says, if you read ancient Rome, and it's bloody, it's a mess. It is not good at all. It is just awful. They delighted in torturing people. Um, um, women had no rights. Slaves certainly had no rights. Um, the only thing that mattered was power. You proved yourself by brute force, and you became the man you wanted to become uh, through power and politics and military might. Right? Um, all that mattered is that you won the next battle. Um, and, and that's Rome. You could do that across the board. And in the opening uh, introduction and chapters and stuff, he, he details it through Babylon and Persia, what, what they would do, how they would just torture people in just agonizing ways where people would suffer for weeks before they would die. I mean, it was, it was just awful. And then it hit him as a historian. What happened to this world? Why is that world so foreign to us? And then he realized... One day, a group of people started marching around the Roman Empire, and they had the most unlikely message that they really believed and everyone thought they were crazy. Their message was a man in a small town you've never heard of on the outskirts of the Roman Empire, subjugated under the world's greatest power, died as a slave would die. And he's come to tell you he rules and reigns the universe. And oh, by the way, your slaves are equal to you in his eyes. These women that you use and abuse and don't think about are equal in this man's eyes. At first, the Romans thought they were mad. The Jews thought they were accursed. But within 300 years, they conquered the world. That's what changed. That's what Tom Holland realized. Not the Spider-Man Tom Holland, the historian Tom Holland. Um, he says that we take things for granted now that, we're, that we, we don't even realize Christianity gave it to us. Why are we appalled by slavery when it was universal? And still is, by the way. 
because of Christianity says it's wrong. Why, why, why do we think that equality is something to pursue when at no other time in the world history was that ever an option? It's because Christianity came along. It all changed because a group of people for 2,000 years have been longing for heaven. And as a result, they brought peace to the kingdom of God here. Can I give you one more example? Because it's my favorite book. You know what it is, Beowulf. You read Beowulf, it's a bloody mess. The monsters in the story, the poem, are a picture of humanity, vengeance, envy, and greed. And all the humans in that, these were Vikings. The story opens up in a funeral. It ends with the funeral. But the funeral, the death of Beowulf, spoiler alert, he dies, the dragon kills him. Um, he is buried and everyone sings this dirge saying, now that our king is gone, these other people groups are going to come kill us. Why? That's what Vikings do. They see an opening, they take it. They see gold, they steal it. They see power, they possess it. They see women, they take them. This is what Vikings do. It's what Hrothgar did in the beginning of Beowulf. It's what Beowulf did at the end. This is what they do. But the point of Beowulf is not for you to say, man, I'm glad we're not Vikings, is to say, why did the Vikings stop doing it? In the history of the poem, this is all free, forgive me, I get excited about this. In the history of the poem, it ends right before missionaries showed up in Norse. And when the missionaries showed up, they brought a better message. You don't have to kill each other. You don't have to seek revenge. You don't have to steal from one another. You don't have to conquer lands. If you will love one another, you'll have peace. We're all exiles. Let's become sojourners. Longing for a better land. All right, next week, let's look at Joseph. Uh, Brother Bob, will you close us in prayer? I'm loving God, which are in heaven, we're so.